0: Welcome to SCN2A Insights, bringing you the latest research and clinical updates on SCN2A and genetic epilepsy from around the world. Hi, I'm Chris Pearce.
1: And I'm David Cunnington.
0: And in this episode, we're talking sleep.
1: I'm actually an adult sleep physician, so I see people with sleep problems. I had the chance to interview Dr Margot Davey, who's a paediatric sleep specialist and works at Monash Health. And Margot's got a lot of experience in managing children with developmental disabilities and trouble with sleep. So I hope you find this interview with her helpful. It formed part of a podcast episode that I run a separate podcast on sleep called Sleep Talk, Talking All Things Sleep. If you're interested in sleep, check that podcast out as well. Thanks a lot, Margot, for helping us out. Pleasure. So what sort of sleep problems can occur in children with severe developmental disabilities?
0: I think these children can suffer from a range of sleep issues. Uh, There can be issues with settling to sleep and maintaining sleep and parents having to be very involved with that routine overnight. There are children who can have impaired quality of sleep because of breathing issues or seizures or other medical conditions that can interfere with their sleep. And then with children who, for example, have visual defects, we can actually see problems with their rhythm of sleep uh, and their night-day differentiation. So... Children with significant developmental disabilities really can have a lot of sleep problems. And how does
1: that differ in terms of the prevalence compared to normally developing kids?
0: I think uh, looking at the prevalence of sleep problems in typically developing children, we'd see about 20 to 30% of families or parents would say that their child has a sleep problem. When you look at the group with developmental disabilities, it jumps up dramatically. Mm -hmm. You know, some studies say 40%, some say 80%. I think it's really very prevalent and very very common. So why is that difference?
1: What, what is it about kids with severe developmental disabilities that gives that incidence of sleep problem?
0: Partly it could be that parents accept their child's sleep problem as part of their disability mm-hmm. and therefore some strategies that we would use for typically developing children like improving independence at falling asleep during the night they don't feel as relevant to their child secondly they do have a lot more medical problems interfering with their sleep so they could have breathing problems they could have reflux they could have difficulties with saliva control they can have pain from contractures or spasms so there's a whole lot of medical issues as well that will be affecting their sleep some of these children may have epilepsy and that can also lead to sleep fragmentation and if epilepsy is not well-controlled can lead to poor quality sleep and frequent wakings. So I think there are many, many reasons why.
1: Yeah, certainly as a parent of someone with or a child with a developmental disability, you know, we know we can be frazzled and you know, feel like, you know, get the kids into bed and whew, our, our day's done. Mm. So can parenting have a role on sleep problems in kids?
0: Look, I, I think it's it's parenting and children in general. It's very much a symbiotic relationship. Sure. And uh, you can do one particular sleep pattern for one child and they sleep through it and it's not an issue. And then with another child, they can wake up frequently and have lots of struggles. So I think the personality and temperament of the child needs to come into it yeah, sure. rather than saying just the parenting uh, style I also think it's very hard when you're very worried about your child for whatever reason Mm -hmm. and you have to be super vigilant for medical problems and I think that also makes it very difficult and also sometimes then sets up situations where children become very reliant on the parents to fall asleep and parents sometimes then are at a loss at how to tackle and change that.
1: Yeah it's a nice segue to then talk about what parents can do so what are some strategies that can help
0: i think some of the strategies can help as you said oh phew, i want to put the children to bed <laughs> yeah. i want this day dusted i think looking at the time from going to bed and actually falling asleep is really important uh, and particularly as children age you know teens do tend to have a change in their circadian rhythm they are able to start a little bit later and so i think if there's a, a big difference between lights off and when a child falls asleep of any age that doesn't promote a good sleep pattern. Mm -hmm. And so I think looking at that difference and maybe making the bedtime routine a bit later so that the child physiologically is actually able to fall asleep, I think those things can help. Uh, The other thing is often parents will say, I don't have any problems getting my child to bed. And they have a very complicated ritual and they're happy doing that at 8.30 at night, but then they're not so happy at one o'clock, three o'clock and five o'clock. So I think looking at how involved the parent is, in helping their child fall asleep and seeing if there are ways that you can change that.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of overlap with what we do in adults. You know, as adults, our you know, compensatory strategies we see with insomnia is you're not sleeping well, go to bed earlier. Yes. Create more opportunity. Yes. So then as an adult, as a parent, it's logical then you'll do that same thing to your child, yes. put them in bed earlier. So, you know, helpful to try and avoid that.
0: Yes, yes. I, I think also with some kids who have um uh, worries or are anxious, and particularly children who can't communicate those needs as well, putting a child to bed too early allows a lot of opportunity to sort of mull over things or make those things worse and sometimes delay sleep onset even further. Yeah, and sometimes
1: there can be difficulties with self-soothing. Um, as adults, again, you know, we can have difficulties with self-soothing and that's an important life skill for people to develop yes. to help. <laughs> getting off to bed. (laughs) So if there is that only ability to settle with a complex routine or a, a set of circumstances, it can almost become a sort of a heavy burden to carry.
0: Yes, it certainly can. And I think that when you are tired and sleep-deprived and, and trying to be the best parent you can, and often in these cases looking after these children, the best sort of caregiver all the time, it's it's hard sometimes to step back and see how you can change it. But I think one of the things is having a look at how many bits to the routine Mm -hmm. there are, and trying to work on one in a supportive way and gradually changing it. These patterns are learned and they can be unlearned or replaced by other things. And I think it's allowing a child the opportunity to learn some different skills to help develop some self-soothing and settling overnight.
1: Yeah, and it is a tricky balance. It's nice to have that sort of self-soothing routine. You know, we have our thing, I read a book, I start to fall asleep, I turn the light out. Mm. You know, that's my sort of settling. But it's a balance of something short that's transportable and not something that's too complex and hard to reproduce. Correct. So body clock problems you talked about a bit earlier. So what are some things that can impact on the body clock and things parents can do to get better sleep and enhance that. I
0: I think one of the other things that's really important is regular routines and schedules. Sometimes there can be tremendous difference between say for example weekdays with parents working and other children in the family uh, and looking at bedtime routines and sometimes there can be two hours, three hours difference between one night and the other. Mm -hmm. And that's not really very helpful in establishing good sleep patterns. I sometimes describe it to parents. It's like jet lag. You're flying from Melbourne to Perth and Perth to Melbourne and expecting yourself to correct in two days and then you're setting it up again a couple of days later. I think trying to have a predictable routine, looking at wake-up times in the morning and not having too much Uh, difference between holidays weekends and weekdays and then maximizing exposure to light in the morning to try and help reset that rhythm Mm -hmm. and making sure that kids are eating in the morning or having something to help signal to the brain this is daytime not nighttime so really highlighting those cues that help all of us you know live during the day and sleep at night One of the things I haven't mentioned is sometimes children with developmental disabilities can sleep quite a lot during the day. Mm -hmm. Sometimes if they're on a bus to go to school and the bus is 30, 45 minutes there and back, sometimes if they fall asleep in class, sometimes teachers aren't as vigilant and they're allowed to sleep. So I've certainly looked after children where when we've really documented it closely, they might have had up to three hours sleep a day. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously going to impact upon the amount of sleep at night. So I think that's another thing to think about when you're addressing sleep problems in children.
1: And what about blue light at night? Is it really that important?
0: I think it is important. Uh, increasingly, there's work looking at our body's physiological mechanism and secretion of melatonin, uh, which is a chemical that's produced in our pineal gland that helps us it's the hormone of darkness our sleep cycle is often centered around that one of the things that we've learned over the years is that light and particularly blue light is an incredibly powerful suppressor of that and so I think with the change in our society of having all these devices portable small and take them to our rooms it does have an effect so I think trying to look at how much screen use is happening before you go to sleep before you turn off the lights because it can certainly affect some children and some adults and in fact recent work would suggest that teenagers are the most vulnerable age group of our uh, life Span, so of course they 're the ones that often are more addicted to it than others
1: and melatonin 's talked about a lot in um, this particular patient group yes well, what 's the role of melatonin? <laughs>
0: Look, I think melatonin has two roles. One, it can be used um, as a sort of hypnotic to help us fall asleep in slightly higher doses, given about half an hour before you go to bed. It also has a very powerful effect on maintaining our circadian rhythm, and that use is often neglected or not really thought about. Most people use it to help you fall asleep, and I think there's a lot of evidence out there that it certainly can help you fall asleep earlier. But when you look at all the studies, the... The amount is modest. We're talking sort of 30 to 45 minutes, Mm -hmm. um, which certainly in, in some families can make a huge impact. But I think you do need to look at other things such as routines, patterns of falling asleep to get maximum benefit from it.
1: In the adult literature, at least, if we're looking at manipulating the circadian rhythm, melatonin seems to be almost the fine print mm. and light and scheduling of mm. the, the keys. Mm. Is it the same in the paediatric literature?
0: I think for certain groups, perhaps it's a bit bolder print. Uh-huh. Um, I think children with autism, there certainly has been a lot of work looking at the physiology of melatonin secretion. And the receptor responsiveness to it, and there certainly are some children who do have very significant effects. Uh, so I think there are some medical conditions where there is a physiological basis. Melatonin might be more helpful than in other kids, but it's not one, you know, melatonin solves everything
1: yeah. and that's often what i see too in adult practice you know people take the melatonin but they're forgetting about light and they've not got a regular routine and a regular schedule and really take a melatonin without doing the other pieces mm. is, is you're not going to get the results out of it
0: i think that's true and as i tell my teens who say oh what about this melatonin and you go well you're doing everything possible to suppress it i think what we need to do is look at harnessing things that we know improve secretion of it and then we can talk about it so we talked a
1: bit about some behavioural things. Is there ever a role for medication in sleep in these sort of children with severe developmental disabilities?
0: Look, there is, there is a role, but I, I think one of the first things that needs to be done is to make sure that there's nothing medical interfering with the children's sleep, mm-hmm. I, I think. Things like breathing problems, the most common cause in in this group of children would be something called obstructive sleep apnea, where there are repeated blockages or obstruction to the airway that can interfere with sleep quality and breathing. And I think it's very important to make sure you're not missing anything that could be interrupting a child's sleep. Similarly, as I mentioned before, some children have significant issues with saliva control, pain from spasms or sometimes if they can't move properly, uh, skin irritation. So I I think before I think about medication to sedate or help a child sleep through, it's really important to make sure I'm not missing anything else that could be contributing to it.
1: Yeah, thanks. So there are some really great strategies. When should someone think about coming to bring their child to see yourself, a (laughs) paediatric sleep specialist?
0: Look, I think a a child's sleep problem obviously has significant impact on a child in terms of their ability to learn, concentrate, function, their modulation of their behaviour. There's a whole lot of things. But I I think we also forget sometimes about the family functioning and how hard it is. And uh, I saw someone last week where, you know, the mum said, we're so tired, you know, Dad nearly had a car accident that when it's really affecting family functioning as well as the child's functioning, I think it's important to be assessed because there may be things medically that are happening that aren't appreciated and there may be other things that we can talk about in terms of routines and schedules that we can improve things.
1: Great. Thanks for your help.
0: Thank you, David. That was a fantastic podcast, giving some helpful advice and information to parents who are trying to help their children sleep.
1: And it can be a real issue for carers because if kids aren't sleeping well or people you're caring for aren't sleeping well, it can have a major impact and just make life's day-to-day things much harder to deal with.
0: Yeah, I certainly remember the early days with Will when sleep was not very common and uh, yeah, it's very difficult as a parent with a child uh, who's not sleeping.
1: So if you're looking for more information on SEN2A or genetic epilepsies, you can keep up with the latest updates by subscribing to this podcast. You can also get regular updates via our social media channels, so SEN2Australia's Facebook or Twitter at SEN2A Australia. If you've got some topics or people you suggest that you'd like us to interview for this podcast, email us at podcast at 2 australiaorg or hit us up via social media. Thanks a lot.